Well, welcome to August. Can you believe it's already here? And welcome to our assembly this morning. Our prayer is that those of you who are here in person, those of you who are watching online will be encouraged and that you will be renewed in your vision of who Jesus is, the hope that we have through Jesus, and that we can live all this next week with purpose, with mission. And so that's why we're here today, and we pray that God will give us exactly what we need. What we need. As um, we get into the lesson, I just want to just uh, make one quick uh, point uh, of announcement here just to let you know that there's going to be a children's ministry workshop coming up on August the 7th. That'll be this Saturday. And I really, really, first of all, appreciate all of the teachers that we have. They do such a wonderful job of teaching from those who are just in the cradle roll all the way up through high school and college, but uh, especially those who are teaching the younger ones. Um, just want to say thank you. And this workshop is to kind of <clears throat> help us build some momentum for the fall as, as we begin the school year and, and move forward. And, and um, it might be that you have kids in your small group that you would, you would like to have some ideas on how to teach them you know, during the time that your small group meets. Or it might be that you're looking to know about the resources that are available here at our church, at our building, whether you're teaching here or whether you're teaching at home. And then you might be looking for ideas for keeping children's attention as you're sharing with them these important messages from God's Word. So this is going to be a wonderful time, and I hope that you'll be able to take advantage of it. We are in a series this summer. We are calling it Out of the Shadows. And we're watching Jesus. We're watching Jesus as he interacts with people, especially people who are on the margins, those that society has pushed to the edge, those that society really doesn't even notice. And we're, we're watching Jesus as disciples, and we're, we're wanting to imitate our rabbi. We want to listen to his teaching and make it how we live. We want to see our rabbi's example, and we want to follow that example. Whatever we see that our rabbi, our teacher's uh, priorities are, we want to have those in our lives as well. And we want to do this as individuals, but we also want to do it collectively as a church, as a community of faith that's living out the kingdom of God in this world so that this world can see the love that God has for all of us. I came across a quote that author Oz Guinness said, and it, it, it kind of uh, really touched me. He said, if Jesus Christ is the head of the church and hence the source and goal of its entire life, True growth is only possible in obedience to him. Conversely, if the church becomes detached from Jesus Christ and his word, it cannot grow, however active and successful it may seem to be. And so we're seeing Jesus in the Gospels as he interacts with those in his 
community and his world, those that have been pushed to the shadows. And we're seeing how he lifts them up from where society has placed them in a place of shame, and he's restoring to them the honor that God intended from the very beginning. So today we're going to be in John chapter 9, that's our text, and so you may want to turn to that. And as you are turning, I'd like to set this up in context, because really this is a, a passage that if you, if you can see it in its context, it has so much more power and meaning uh, for us today. So Jesus is in Jerusalem uh, at this time, and it's during the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles lasts for seven days. And everybody that can is in Jerusalem. They've walked there. They've traveled there from great distances in many cases. And they spend this entire week celebrating and eating together and enjoying time together and worshiping God in chapter 7 of John, the seven days end. And then in chapter 8, verse 2, we read that it's the dawn of the next day. Now, in that time, the eighth day, or you have the seven days of the festival, on the eighth day, that is considered Sabbath. And so, as we're reading John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, it all takes place on this eighth day, this Sabbath day. And so as we, as we look at, eight, at uh, verse uh, 12 in John chapter 8, we see that it's early in the morning. And as I'm reading this, I'm picturing the sun coming up off the horizon. Jesus is there in the temple, and the sunlight is starting to really shine brightly in the sky, breaking through the darkness of the night. And in verse 12, Jesus speaks to the crowd that's gathered there, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if you keep on reading in chapter 8, you'll see that this sparks off a, a very active and, uh, and, and somewhat uh, difficult conversation that takes place with Jesus and the, the temple authorities, the religious authorities. They, they're, they're offended at Jesus saying this. And the, what is in the conversation is his identity. What's the identity of Jesus? And whose authority does Jesus have? And then the very last verse of chapter 8, if you jump down there and read it, you can see that what Jesus said during the course of this conversation upset them so much that in verse 59 it says, at this they picked up stones. Now we're talking about the religious authorities. We're talking about the, the rabbis. We're talking about those that, that you would think would be dignified and would never do this. But it says, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, when John wrote this, it wasn't divided into chapters and verses. So when we read chapter 9, verse 1, it really needs to be attached to the end of chapter 8. So Jesus, after this long and heated conversation, he disappears into the crowd. Those 
who were in authority had picked up rocks and they were trying to find where is Jesus and Jesus has gone. He walked out from the temple and then we read John chapter 9 verse 1. John writes, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. So this is as he's walking away from this controversy, this 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 heated argument. He's walking away from people who had rocks in their hands ready to stone him. He's walking out, and John says as he's going along, he sees a man blind from birth. I've spent a lot of time this week thinking about this word, sees. I've, un- I've circled it in my scripture. Jesus saw lots of blind people, probably many of them blind from birth. What is, what is it that stands out on this time? Jesus, he's, he's obviously in a hurry. He's trying to get away, but he stops, I think. I think that Jesus stops and he begins to look at this blind man. What is meant by the word see here? that Jesus sees this man who's been born blind. You know, it's likely, it's likely that Jesus has actually seen this man many times before as he's gone in and out of the temple. It's Sabbath, and so the beggar was forbidden to cry out for help on Sabbath. What did Jesus do as he saw this blind man? Did he walk over and put money in his hand? I kind of think that he went over and he looked at this blind man. My thought is that he is thinking back to the conversation that just took place there at the temple. The conversation that started off with Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you're not going to walk in darkness. He's thinking about that, and he goes over to this blind man. I think that he then stoops down and looks at him and realizes that something bigger is going on here. But as Jesus does, like rabbis do, everything with intention for teaching and everything pointing towards a a bigger lesson, the disciples do what the disciples are supposed to do. They ask him a question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Who sinned? They look at the man who's born blind Blind. He's been blind from birth. And they don't see a man. They see a controversy. They say, we need to talk about this. Who sinned, Rabbi? Who sinned, teacher? Who sinned, Jesus? Was it this man or was it his parents? I wrote in my notes, the man is blind, not deaf. What a cruel question to ask right in front of the blind man. 
Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? I feel certain the blind man heard that, and I wonder what it did to his heart. You see, the question that the disciples asked revealed how physical ailments and pain and suffering were viewed by the religious authorities and teachers of that day. Where Jesus lived in a world where it was taught that God punished personal sin as a reminder to society of what happens when they disobey. You see, it's also easy to find, not just in Scripture, proof texting that would support this, but also rabbinical teaching and commentary that supports this. In fact, there's many verses like this in the Midrash that says, when a pregnant woman worships in a heathen temple, the fetus also commits adultery. You see, this is what was being taught in that day. And so the disciples thought that they were, they were asking a very important question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? This question is also asked today sometimes. As I was studying for this, I thought how hurtful this question, this verse is in our Bibles to parents of children with special needs. You see, the accuser is so, so crafty and the accuser always is able to whisper into our ears, oh, you could have done something different. This is your fault. This is a cruel and confusing and troubling question that the disciples ask. I don't know about you, but I like for my doctrines to fit nicely in a box. I don't, I don't do well with all of these things that are just out there. I like clear boxes to put my doctrine in. But Jesus doesn't really make this easy. The scriptures don't really make this easy. Not long ago, I read a book that N.T. Wright wrote, and he says this about Jesus. He said, sometimes he could speak and act like an Old Testament prophet. And people did say that he reminded them of Jeremiah or Elijah, which gives you a rather different picture to the standard image of Jesus, meek and mild. Yet at other times, he seems to have been looking not backwards to sins, which might bring judgment, but forward to the new thing that was happening, the kingdom of God. I really love this, that Jesus, Jesus so often as he's, as he's teaching, as he's talking, he says, rather than looking back and trying to assign blame and trying to figure out why this, why that, Jesus takes our eyes and looks forward. Watch how God is going to redeem a sinful world. Watch how God is going to work in every one of our lives to bring healing and redemption. Notice Jesus' very clear response here in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in them. Oh, I love that. 
Jesus didn't beat around the bush. It's not fuzzy. Jesus said neither this man nor his parents sinned. There was no hesitation. There was no thinking about it or processing it. Jesus says your assumption is wrong. That teaching that has resulted in this line of thinking is false. I love it that Jesus is going head on against this teaching of the religious authorities in that day. Jesus stops as he's walking out of the city. He sees a blind man. And as he's there, the disciples ask this difficult question. And Jesus said, no. This is not how God intended our world to be. And it's as as if Jesus is saying, watch how God is going to use this man's blindness to teach generations of people who I am and what it means to really see. Jesus wasn't going to be drawn into looking back. Jesus points the eyes of everyone forward. N.T. Wright continues, he says, Jesus, in other words, doesn't look back to a hypothetical cause which would enable onlookers to feel smug that they had understood some inner cosmic moral mechanism, some sin that God had to punish. He looks forward to see what God is going to do about it. That translates directly into what he, Jesus, is going to do about it. For he is the light of the world. And then the next verse, our Lord proceeds to give a physical demonstration of what he can do spiritually. Verse 6, after saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with his saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Jesus bends down and he makes some mud with saliva. Now, this sounds like a strange thing to do for us today in our cultural context, but in the Jewish context, it was a well-known remedy for eye afflictions. And, and some scholars saying Jesus, by putting mud on the man's eyes, heightened his expectations of healing. Other scholars point out the fact that this is actually a reenactment of creation. Highlighting the true identity of Jesus who spoke the word and the world came into existence. For God made man from the dust of the ground. But I also think that the resulting conversation, this heated conversation which is about to follow, reveals that Jesus was also attacking the controlling oral traditions of the day. Because To the religious authorities, what Jesus just did was a violation of the Sabbath. There was a strict and controlling oral tradition that said, no spitting on Sabbath. Make sure if you spit that it's not on Sabbath because your spit will go and it might roll in the dirt and it might make mud. And Jesus intentionally spits into the dirt and he makes mud and he puts it on the man's eyes. And then he says, go and wash it off in the pool of Siloam. 
I don't know how he got there. It could be that he, he had a young boy or someone that would lead him there quickly. He went to the pool. He got into the water, and he pushed, pulled, put water in his hand, and he put it on his eyes. And I wish, I wish there were more details here. I really do. He put the water on his eyes, and he washed off the mud. And for the first time in his life, he saw. What an incredible experience that must have been. He could hardly wait to go back and see his friends and his family, so he goes back to his neighborhood. And in verse 8, it says, His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, oh, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Verse 10, how then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man that they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Well, where is this man? They, they asked him. I don't know. He said, well, those in his neighborhood, his, his friends, they didn't know what to do with him. And so they decided they need to take him to the religious authorities. And so that's what they did. They figured if this was a miracle, then the religious authorities need to see this. So verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees, brought to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind, now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath, John reminds us. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And the man repeats his story. Well, he put mud on his eyes, the man replied. I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, speaking about whoever it was, this man named Jesus. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, the, the, the disciples, they saw the blind man as a controversy, a problem, a, a, a controversy or an issue that needed to be settled. The Pharisees saw the blind man as a problem because there was someone in opposition to their tradition. They wanted this problem to go away, and so they reacted with condemnation. They didn't believe the account of his friends and his neighbors. They didn't believe the account that he himself gave. And so they decided they better bring in the parents. And so they brought in his parents. And the parents said, yes, he's our son. And they said, well, has, is he, has he always been blind? And they said, yes, he's always, been, he's always been blind. He was born blind. Well, then how, how was he healed, they asked. And they said, well, ask him. He's old enough to tell you. Well, the Pharisees didn't really like that. So they called the blind man back in to ask him to tell the story again. I, I think they were hoping that they could find some discrepancy in his story. And so the man told him again. They said, you've got to be lying. 
If you were healed on the Sabbath, then we know this man who healed you is a sinner and not for, from God. And so that means that you, <clears throat> you weren't really healed. If he violated the Sabbath, he can't be from God. If he can't be from God, then it's not a miracle. And that means that you are a liar. Can you see their logical progression here? And then verse 25 is one of my favorite verses in the entire scriptures. I have stars written all around it. The blind man looks at him and he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Isn't that beautiful? Just a simple testimony, a story of what Jesus has done in his life, this, this redemption that's taken place in his world. Well, when the Pharisees heard this, they knew that they didn't have an answer to his testimony. The only thing they could do was to go back to resulting uh, and, and to go back and shout out insults again. And so they said, you're lying. You were, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you to lecture us? And then they threw him out. I love what Jesus does next. You see, Jesus had healed the man's eyes, but Jesus was more concerned with his heart than his eyesight. Jesus' ultimate goal was not the res restoration of physical eyesight, but rather it was the redemption of a soul. And so we read in verse 35, when Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe that I am who, who I claim to be, that I am the light of the world? The man says, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. You see, the man had never seen Jesus' face. He didn't recognize Jesus' face at all. And so he says, well, who is this man? Tell me so that I can believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. Powerful words. You now see him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. In verse 38, the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Oh, what I see from this story is that Jesus sees this blind man, this, this man that, that society had pushed into the shadows as someone that God can redeem, a person made in the image of God who's in the shadows no more. And so Jesus, he reaches down and he lifts him up from his position that society had put him in, a position of shame, and he lifts him up to restore him to where God had originally created, where God wants us to be, knowing that we're loved, knowing that we're noticed, But more than that, I think that in this story, Jesus challenges everyone with the same question. 
Do you believe? Do you see me? What I notice in this story is that the religious leaders grew more and more blind. That Jesus went from a Sabbath violator to a sinner to no way this man could come from God. You see, they were so struck on their tradition that they were blinded to the true identity of Jesus. They were so confident in their interpretation of Scripture that they couldn't see a man born blind as someone that God could use for His glory. But they also couldn't see that Jesus was the chosen one of God. They missed it completely. On the other hand, the blind man, he went from calling Jesus this man to then calling him a prophet to then bowing down at his feet and worshiping him as Lord, as the chosen one. So the story concludes with these final verses. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. I think that even today, Jesus is asking us, do you see me now? Do you really see me now? What jumps off the page is this question Do I see Jesus in the same way that the Pharisees saw Jesus? Am I blinded by pride? Am I blinded by tradition? Am I blinded by religious orthodoxy? So much so that I miss the heart and the purpose of Jesus. Or am I more like this blind man who used every moment that he had with Jesus to grow closer and closer in relationship to see clearer and clearer who Jesus was? This man who knew nothing really of religious tradition, who had been excluded from spiritual community all of his life, he falls down at the feet of Jesus and worships him. And so we see in this story, the context of it, that the day began with Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it ended with the statement, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. So what's God saying to you from this text today? You see, every time we go to the scripture, we need to be changed. We should never go to the scripture and just keep it in neutral and not be changed at all. Whenever we go to the The text, the text is living and acted. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so when we go to the text, we need to be convicted and moved into action. What is the Spirit of God saying to you today? And how will you respond to the teaching of this text of Scripture? If you need to talk to someone, if you want to recommit your life to Jesus, if you want to be immersed into His name 
We're going to be up here after during the singing of the song, and I'll be in the Welcome Center afterwards. I would love to visit with you. The question is, do you see Jesus now?